0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Take the shot, she scores! See the
1: full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Bom dia! Today on our World Cup tour, we arrive, Dominic, at one of the great giants of the World Cup, don't we? Brazil. The greatest giant, I think people would say, Tom. The giantest giant. Yeah, absolutely. But Brazil is also, of course, a country that featured in a four-part special we did a few months back on the history of Portugal. Uh, Brazil, of course, was colonised by Portugal. And at one point during the Peninsular War, the entire Portuguese royal family got ferried across from Portugal by the British Navy to Brazil to escape the, right. the onslaught of yep. Napoleon's French and established a, a, an empire there. It became the, 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 the capital of um, of the entire Portuguese empire. And Portugal itself became a kind of colonial backwater. I mean, extraordinary yep. development. And you promised us then, because we were focusing on Portugal, and once Brazil became independent, um, we, we rather left Brazil behind. But you promised us that we would do the history of the, the Brazilian empire. And that, unless I'm much mistaken, <laughs> is what you have in store for us today. That's right, Tom. So it's a kind of spin-off, isn't it, from our,
0: our, our Portuguese epic? It is really, yes. I mean, Brazilian listeners will be horrified to hear they a spin-off. They would say Portugal is a spin-off, wouldn't they, Tom? Um, but it's an extraordinary thing that people, I mean, everybody, when they think of the World Cup, when they think of football, they think of Brazil. Brazil is, I think, the world's fifth largest country, its seventh largest by population, um, by far the largest country in Latin America. And yet its history has so little traction in the British, the European, and I guess the American um, imagination. We know so little of it. And um, the the real focus today is... Brazil's second emperor, second and last emperor, Pedro II. And we'll come to him in a
1: moment. So I'm guessing if he's the second emperor, that the first emperor was Pedro I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would
0: that be correct? That's very, that's very astute. Call me Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the extraordinary thing about Brazil is that Brazil is the one Latin American country that begins as a monarchy. It is not a republic. So it became independence in 1822. Um, so the Napoleonic Wars are over. And, um, as you described, and as we talked about in our Portugal podcasts, there is this, there's been this sort of rising tension between Portugal and Brazil. The Portuguese kind of want their top status back. They want their royal family back. Um, Dom João, who was the, the king of Portugal has gone back to Portugal. Um, but the Brazilians, the Brazilian elite, I should say, um, the sort of the, obviously the, the Europeanized kind of elite have thrown off the shackles of Portugal and proclaimed independence. Encouraged by
1: this Portuguese king, right? I mean, he he goes right. and he tells his son, declare independence. Yes. Which is very treacherous behavior
0: from a king. Well, he doesn't want his son and the court in Rio to be subject to this sort of liberal constitutionalism that is all the rage in Portugal. So what happens, it's 1822. Brazil has about 3 million people. Um It has this, its wealth is based in, exploitation, I suppose you would say. It's on gold and sugar from which the Portuguese have been profiting in the 18th century. Um, It's also largely based on slavery. So Brazil has imported more slaves than anywhere else in the world. 11 times more than the United States of America, is that right? Yeah, something more than 10 times more or something like that went from Africa to Brazil than went to the United States of America. So exactly, isn't it interesting that when people have these conversations about and arguments and debates about the Atlantic slave trade—it's—we think of it in terms of the Caribbean, of Jamaica, or we think of it in terms of the United States and this great Southern cotton plantations. But Brazil is kind of left out of the story by English speakers um, because we know so little about it. So this nascent monarchy has been formed um, under Dom Pedro, who is the Portuguese king's son. And he is proclaimed the Defender of Brazil, the Emperor of Brazil. Um, his his proclamation of independence is very monarchist. Uh, he has a coronation, Tom, that you would very much appreciate. Um, is it it's, sacral? It's very sacral. He is anointed. Is it weird? It is not weird. I know you've been, some weeks ago, very unpatriotically making comments about the weirdness of the... Um, it's not unpatriotic, Dominic. Weird is per- a perfectly respectable Old English word. <laughs> well
1: conveying you then, a sense you then, of the
0: otherworldly and the supernatural you resorted to strange abstruse linguistic no, not at justifications all. of your use of the word weird to describe the british monarchy which i thought was absolutely disgraceful and the 10 page daily mail denunciation is forthcoming <laughs> um but in the meantime while we're still doing the podcast together where you are still allowed to travel the country and, and not yet confined to house arrest enjoying the peace of good king charles Exactly. Uh, we shall continue with Brazil. So he's anointed. He has a Dom Pedro has a ceremony which is based, I read, on um, the kind of enthroning of pontiffs and of emperors and so on. He's anointed and consecrated with holy oil. But Brazil weird. is kind of properly weird. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that, it's completely reasonable and not weird at all. Exactly. Right. So this is a very conservative state in in many ways. It's. Unlike other what you might call revolutionary independent states, it is devoted to the to the monarchy, to slavery, and to defending the interests of the big kind of Brazilian landowning classes, the people who own gold mines and sugar plantations and so on. And obviously, the, that, that issue of slavery, because we're in the 19th century, means there is to some extent a kind of time bomb at the heart of the kind of Brazilian constitution. So about a third of the population um, are slaves. And in some areas, in Salvador, in the sort of northeast of Brazil, um, about 80% of the people in the, in the city are slaves. Even in Rio, about 45% of the people, so about half the people um, there are, are slaves. So, that's, so they are not kind of citizens. They are not members of the sort of political community of this new country. So that's, I mean, that seems the
1: equivalent of being for, for the slave owners to be the equivalent of, of camping out on the edge of a volcano. You would think so, yeah. And we we'll- how how can if if eighty percent of
0: the population are slaves, are there revolts? Are there? It, there are. I mean, spoiler alert: there will be slave revolts in this podcast. Um, yes, exactly. I, I, and the, but the part that the monarchy plays in this slavery question is probably not the part that anybody is going to expect who doesn't know the story already. So we'll come to that. So what they're trying to do is to create a new nation. They, they have a state, but they don't really have a nation. So one way of doing that, they have a new flag. The, the flag of Brazil, everybody kind of the green and yellow. Um, the green, interestingly, so they, the, the flag of Brazil now is not quite the same as it was in the 1820s, but it's similar. So the green represents the House of Braganza, the Portuguese royal family. Oh, I always thought it was the jungle. no. And the yellow is the Austrian imperial family. I always thought it was the gold. No, 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 no. So it's it's real old world kind of um, heraldry, kind of stuff. Uh, There's a diamond shape in the flag, and that apparently is a tribute to Napoleon. I don't know why. Um, (laughs) That seems counterintuitive.
1: Well, since they ran away
0: there to get away from him. I suppose so, but people are very transfixed by Napoleon, aren't they? At the beginning of the, especially once he's been tamed and defeated. Yeah, but we, we haven't got a, a reference to Napoleon on the our flag. I mean, it's interesting. No, that's true. But it's interesting that the that Brazil is not a kingdom. It's an empire. So right from the beginning, there's a kind of ambition to yeah, the foundation okay. of Brazil. that This is going to be a kind of Napoleonic empire in the Americas. And obviously, you don't just need a flag for a nation, you need a dynasty. So Dom Pedro, who is a very dissolute and useless person, really, who's only really interested in sort of his endless affairs with different kind of society women. I mean, we talked about him in our Portugal podcasts as having had chronic diarrhea when he was announcing. Yes. Um, and that sort of sets the tone, I think, for his reign, I think it's fair to say. So, But he has a son in 1825, his, his wife, Donna Leopoldina. So she's from this sort of Austrian background, hence the flag. Um, she gives birth to Don Pedro, the future Don Pedro II. And uh, Don Pedro the who's going to dominate this podcast today, the little boy, he, he is related to almost every royal family in Europe. So he can trace his descent to, from the kings of Castile and Aragon, from the kings of France, from the kings of Hungary, uh, from Maria Theresa of Austria. So this is a real, you know, he is a sort of an icon of European royalty, born in the Americas. An, an, an extraordinary kind of individual. So he's the future of the dynasty. But his father, Don Pedro I, useless. Um, he's pretty Shitting. much distracted. Yeah, yes. Thank you for that, Tom. He is distracted pretty much straight away by Portugal because his father had died back in Portugal and he wants to be king of Portugal. So he's sort of increasingly torn between Portugal um, and Brazil. In 1831, um, the sort of tensions that are, that underlie his rule. Is he does he is he content as Emperor of Brazil, or does he really ultimately want to go back to Portugal and claim the throne of Portugal? These come out in in the open. There are a lot of liberals. This is among the the elite, the sort of elite in cities like Rio, people who are reading newspapers and kind of go into salons and things like that, who who kind of chafe a little bit at the idea of an absolute monarch. They um they sort of take to the streets and they start sort of shouting long live the constitution as people tend to do in the early years of the 19th century. Um, There's a thing called the night of the bottles where people are all throwing bottles at each other. Yeah. People are throwing bottles at each other. I assume empty bottles rather Hmm. than, I mean, it would seem utterly wasteful to be throwing bottles of wine or something. Yeah. That'd be a waste, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would be a terrible waste. Um, And there's a sort of, Great groundswell of opinion against Don Pedro the uh, First. He says, "Right, I'm going to abdicate." So he abdicates. And he flounces off to Portugal, does he? Or? And he flounces off to Portugal. um So he he abdicates. He says, "My son is now the emperor," even though his son is six, five and a half. Six? He's abdicated. That's very irresponsible. Five and a half. He says, "I'm, I'm off. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going off to uh, Portugal." So he does go off to Portugal. Um, he fights a civil war in Portugal to try and put his daughter on the throne of Portugal. So, what's his plan? He's going to be the power behind the throne. The Portuguese have made it clear they don't want him as king, but he thinks I'll put my daughter on the throne and I'll be the, you know, I'll be the big man. Um, he dies of tuberculosis in the hour of his victory, Tom. Oh, that's sad. But interestingly, Here's the thing. Here's a sort of portent of the future. Don Pedro the who we described as useless. On his deathbed, he writes an open letter to the people of Brazil. So he hasn't forgotten about Brazil, which is nice. Okay, that's good. And in the open letter, he says, slavery is an evil and an attack against the rights and dignity of the human species. But its consequences are less harmful to those who suffer in captivity than to the nation whose laws allow slavery. It is cancer that devours its morality. So he's sort of pinning his, saying, you know, the monarchy should not be on, the, on the, in favour of slavery, and slavery is very bad. Well, I'm sure the slaves are happy about that, but I'm not entirely sure they'd agree with him that, that they're they're better off than, than their owners. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's right. Who's the real victim That's, here? Exactly. So anyway, Don Pedro I is dead. Meanwhile, back in Brazil, the Brazilians are having to get used to their, their second emperor, who is not yet six years old. So poor little Don Pedro II, they bring him onto a balcony in, in Rio. He's so small, he can't kind of look over the balustrade. <laughs> so they put him on a chair, and he waves a hanky. They get him to wave a hanky to the crowds, and everybody cheers and says, hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. But for him, this is very bad news. He's sent off to a palace called São Cristóvão with his two sisters, Francisca and Januaria. January, great name. Great, great name. And um, they basically are just sort of locked in this palace and given endless lessons. Mm-hmm. So the, the Brazilians take it very think it's very important that their future emperor, well, their current emperor, I suppose. And what are they teaching it? him? Lepidoquia. They teach him. Well, we know because we have a letter. Botany. There are, there are very few sources actually, Tom, on the life of poor Don Pedro II because he's locked. He's locked in his room the whole time, so we don't really right. know. But um, he writes a letter to his sister at one point, and he's in 1833, and he says, "Writing, arithmetic, geography, drawing, French, English, music, and dance divide our time." We work constantly to acquire knowledge. And it is only these efforts that mitigate how sorely we miss you during our separation. Oh. So he's not really allowed any
1: friends. So he's not really learning about rainforests or anything?
0: No, no, no. no. He's learning European, old world sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of locked in his room doing arithmetic all the time. He's pretty miserable. He's pretty unhappy. He's lonely. Um... He's been separated from his parents. He's kind of shy and he's reclusive. So there's the emperor. He's the little boy who's the emperor of Brazil. Meanwhile, Brazil itself is a bit of a, will wouldn't call it a basket case. That's too harsh. But you asked about slave revolts. There are an awful lot of slave revolts in the early decades of, of Brazilian independence. So in the state of Pernambuco, there's a big revolt called the Cabanada Revolt. And that's, you've got... um Brazilian Indians, escaped slaves, uh, squatters, people who've sort of been marginalized and forced out. They all come together and they form their own kind of community in the woods. Um, And they kind of, they form their own army and they're always fighting off the landowners' attempts to kind of put them down. And this is a real theme of 19th century Brazilian history. And how long did they manage to hold out? They held out for about four years. I mean, quite a long time. Yeah. And this is absolutely the, you know, you see this pattern. Again and again. So in the, the big, huge northern state of Para, in the late 1830s, there's another revolt of, again, sort of Indians, slaves, and so on. And their slaves turn against their masters, and they whip them and kill them. And in the cities, there are huge sort of outpourings of hatred against the slaves and the Indians. And people say they're evil, they're the forces of the devil. You know, this is what happened in Haiti the Haitian Revolution, that will happen here in Brazil. The only way to deal with them is by, you know, intense violence and, and so on and so forth. And there is a colossal amount of, of violence. So in states like Para, I mean, I think something like 100,000 people were killed. I mean, these are massive, you know, death tolls. Yeah. In a, I, I was about to say utterly unreported in, in the old world. That's not really true. But what is true, I suppose, is that they're utterly forgotten today. In, so in Europe, people aren't even aware that these things happened. Well, presumably they are in Portugal. Yeah, I'm sure people know about it in Portugal. But, but I mean, we know about American history because we speak English. So right, I suppose
1: that's, so I suppose that's, that's I true. I mean, that's the reason.
0: A slave revolt that would really interest you is in the sort of northeastern state of Bahia in 1835, famous city there, which was a huge sort of trading sort of center for the slave trade, Salvador. So there... Um, there's an Islamic element to the wow. slave revolt. That's so a lot of the African slaves who have been brought to buyer are Muslims and Islam becomes the kind of, um, the common ground for different groups of slaves so they can unite around their faith. So they wear white tunics, white prayer tunics. They wear amulets inscribed with verses from the Quran when they, when they rise up. And of course, that then means that for the slave owners. It's a religious war. It's a religious war. Exactly. So, again, extremely violent. Uh, When that's put down, 500 people are executed, publicly executed. Are there traces of
1: Islam still in Salvador?
0: That's a good question, Tom. I don't know. I don't know at all. Of course, the big story in Brazil has been the rise of Protestant evangelicalism. So originally a Catholic country, but... um, I just wondered whether... But I don't know. I'd be interested to find out, actually. Um, Maybe so if we have Brazilian listeners. I don't think we ultimately do have many Brazilian (laughs) listeners, but we do have a few, Tom, because we put out our Brazilian independence episode. Yes, we did. So the story about the Portuguese court on Brazil's Independence Day. And we had some listeners saying it was actually a complete coincidence, wasn't it? But we pretended it was by design, and our Brazilian listeners were very, very excited. Um. So there's a real sense at the end of the 1830s anyway that Brazil is a bit of a sort of um, – it's in a terrible ferment with all this sort of stuff. And the elites decide the way to deal with this is actually we need to crown the emperor. Even though he's still only a teenager, if we put him in charge, he will be a figure around whom everybody can can kind of rally. So it's 1841. And he is what, he's hes about to turn 16. And they have this huge coronation ceremony um, in Rio. Uh, the, all the newspapers sort of say he is the greatest man of his generation. He is the new, you know, Charles V or whatever. He is a, a master of languages and of, of education, all this stuff, because he's basically been locked in a schoolroom for the, all his life. So that all this sort of projection of him is the answer to all Brazil's woes. They have this... It's interesting how they're still so kind of enthralled to European models. So they have huge medallions, four medallions for his models, Tom, and his, the people who he's going to emulate. And they are Charlemagne, Francois I of France, so Henry VIII's um, great rival, uh, Napoleon, and sometime friend, sometime associate of the rest is history, Peter the Great. These are the people that um, – mm. what do you think of that? Uh, well, I think there'd be a lot of roistering, but he doesn't,
1: <laughs> but he doesn't sound the kind of roistering kind, does he? No, I mean, he's not François-Premier ro- and, um, Peter the Great, both, they, they love throwing a dwarf around and They're great smashing wrestlers. up a garden. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Blueberry races and all that kind of Charlemagne. stuff. Charlemagne? Charlemagne, uh, not, he, he liked a hot bath. And, and very- He'd hang out in the bath and chat to churchmen. So I don't know that's- was about to say, chatting
0: to churchmen is his thing, isn't yes. it? Yes. And who is the other person? Napoleon. Napoleon. Well, we Metric system. Napoleon. Yeah. Metric is system. That, is that
1: what first comes into your mind when you think Napoleon?
0: The metric system? <laughs> what, what should and I do? You wrote for the Daily Mail. What well, should I? Well, but, but, but I mean, the metric system is surely the greatest of Napoleon's <laughs> greatest It's it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> evil. Yeah. Tom, you're, you're right. talking to a man who once wrote a column saying that the, <laughs> the adoption of decimal currency was the moment Britain lost its national soul. So. Yeah, okay, <laughs>
1: okay. well, I can see that why wow, that's a shadow a shadow yeah. hanging over you. All right, so um, to what extent does
0: he live up to these four role models? Do you know what? He doesn't do too badly. Now, <laughs> there is one, he needs a wife. So, Cause he, so he's not a milksop? Not a total milk. No, well, you shall discover that he's not a total milksop. They bring over a, a wife for him two years after he's been crowned. She's Princess Teresa Maria Cristina of the two Sicilies. Uh, she comes over he's been told it's very anne of Cleves. she he has been told she's an absolute (laughs) beauty you know god you're gonna be over the moon you can't wait she arrives she's quite short she's quite large and she's lame and um (laughs) it is said that he he composed himself he was sufficiently composed not to disgrace himself when she was brought in but when she went out again he burst into tears oh and um sad for both of them and his sort of major domo embraced him and kind of consoled him and said, remember the dignity of your position. Do your duty, my child. And does he? And he did do his duty, actually. So he man, did do he his duty. He's very unlucky because all his sons died very young. But he was left with a, an heir, a, a, a daughter called Isabel, who we will come to later on. So Don Pedro II, he's a kind of, he's a kind of constitutional monarch. Um, he's, not a, he's got more power than in Britain. But obviously, he's not got the power of a czar or, or yeah. sort of Louis the Fourteenth or something like that. Um, and and the, I suppose the big sort of pressure is this issue of, of slavery. So, just to give you a sense of, of slavery in Brazil, slavery is so embedded in the Brazilian social structure that Rio de Janeiro in let's say 1850. Has more slaves than any city, supposedly, since the end of the Roman Empire. That's wow. an amazing statistic. That is amazing Tom. fact. So, one hundred ten thousand slaves live more in more than Baghdad. Europe? Apparently, so. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't compile these mysterious facts that I find on the internet. So, um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. I think actually, I read this. There's a brilliant book. Um, called Brazil, a Biography by Eloisa Starling and Lilia Moritz-Schwartz, which we, I talked about in our Portuguese episodes. Yes, it did, yeah. It's the definitive um, English language history, I think, of, of Brazil, sort of academic history of Brazil. And it's absolutely brilliant on this sort of the, the world of, of Rio in the in the mid-19th century. So to give you a sort of sense of it, it's not just that it, former slaves own, own slaves, but actual slaves own slaves that was a roman thing is that did roman slaves own yeah. slaves yeah well this is what they have in brazil i mean it's so embedded that's like latin it, america right we're latin america very good um so that but that obviously is coming under pressure because the british are moving internationally against the slave trade for example and there's a there's a move within brazil to encourage immigration rather than slavery. So in the mid-19th century, you're starting to get the government encouraging lots of massive immigration of sort of cheap labor from Europe as an alternative to the slave trade. But so that is going to create all kinds of pressures of its own. And those are some of the things that Don Pedro is going to have to wrestle with now that he has really taken the reins of his country. So should we
1: should we look at his wrestling with the reins of his country? yeah
0: uh, in part two is that a good go image
1: wrestling with the rains quite like i mean it. it's better
0: than wrestling with dwarves <laughs> like peter the great or something
1: yeah uh so uh, when we come back there'll be a rain wrestling so something to look forward to there that's exciting bye-bye this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in williamsburg virginia there's never too much of a good thing whether you're a foodie a golfer a history buff a shopaholic an outdoor enthusiast or a thrill seeker You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, welcome back to our Brazil special. Um, We're looking at the reign of Emperor Pedro II of Brazil, um, and Dominic, in the first part, we uh, briefly, you, you touched on a slave revolt in which uh, in Salvador in North Brazil, where lots of the slaves were Muslim. And I asked you, uh, it, does Islam still have much of a presence in Brazil? And during the break, I went to the in and I checked. And do you know, out of a, a population of 191 million, yeah. the total number of Muslims in Brazil, 35,000. Crikey. So very, very small, under 1%. Tiny. Yeah, very really tiny. tiny. And apparently the uh, the Muslims in that, that took part in this the, the slave revolts were very aggressively proselytized. So they were essentially forcibly converted to Catholicism. And so Crikey. So the, the trace elements of Islam were wiped out. And the and Muslims, sort of Muslims now are, are, are basically uh, uh immigrants from Lebanon yeah. and Syria. Yeah.
0: So, so that tells you something about the violence of the system, right? That yes, they're it able does. to yeah, suppress well. um the, the slaves religion so completely yes yeah, so Pedro II, he, he what he really wants to do is to create a unique brazilian national culture and it's under his aegis that the he he encourages all kinds of brazilian writers and painters and so on to create a kind of idea of brazilianness and it, what it's going to be is slavery is not part of the story at all so he, what he does is he kind of creates this idea of a, of a specifically kind of tropical culture, full of images of Indians and things, and of and of the Portuguese. But the slaves are almost entirely absent. So paintings, they do lots of landscapes and lots of kind of very romantic. And Is it now that they're starting to wake up to the the grandeur of the natural world on their doorstep? Yes. So the natural world is. You asked at the beginning about him and yeah. the natural world, and the natural world is is very much his thing. So now they get into jaguars and things. Exactly. So the imagery is all kind of, you know, exotic fruits and exotic beasts. You see these in, in lots yeah. of Brazilian kind of landscape paintings. He himself, he's very much a sort of bookish person. So he starts to learn. He, he's he's he loves languages. He's kind of like sort of J.R.R. Tolkien figure, studying lots studying of languages. Finnish grammars. But he's not studying Finnish grammars, he's studying Tupi and Guarani. So indigenous Indian yeah. Brazilian Indian languages, which other people in the elite regard with scorn but the emperor is really interested in all this sort of stuff he finances all kinds of research projects he brings over german botanists and sort of um swedish naturalists and mineralogists and linguists and geologists from all over europe and he basically pays for them to come to brazil and to produce these beautifully illustrated but he's i mean he's not so this isn't something completely new is it because there's that
1: um the very famous and beautiful library that burnt down, I think, four years ago, something like that, Um, which I I think, I think dates to the kind of the early years of the arrival of the Portuguese family, royal family yeah. in, in
0: Brazil. beautiful libraries in Portugal, actually, Tom. Amazing. Yes, yeah, so that's very much,
1: very much in, in, in the tradition. Yeah. And it was, it was... um I think it's where the, the, the Brazilian emperor stayed. So so he, so he, so that tradition of that, that library and that kind of tradition of scholarship and interest in the natural world to a degree is something that he's he must be picking up on from that.
0: Oh, up. absolutely. And I think what's really interesting is that he's – so what he's trying to do, is he trying to reproduce the old world in the new? I mean, not quite. He's he's giving it this spin, this sort of tropical culture and this tropical monarchy. But he's obviously very – you know, it's, it's very important to Don Pedro II That he creates a Brazilian culture that people will consider alongside, you know, Portuguese, Spanish, French, German, Italian culture or whatever. That it's part of the same kind of continuum, I guess. Um, And science, he's, he's absolutely passionate about science. He's the first Brazilian photographer because he acquires a kind of very early daguerreotype camera in 1840. Um, he sets up a, a, a photo laboratory in his palace in São Cristóvão. He also has a chemistry laboratory and a physics laboratory. He has an astronomical observatory. He has a, a saying that he likes to bring out and bore his courtiers with. He says, "La science c'est moi." <laughs> well, D- Dominic, I'm just reading in the in the Bodleian that he
1: apparently there was a um, a meteorite that landed um, in the Badlands, and he sent an expedition to try and find it. Uh, that's exactly the kind of thing he did. It was a five metric ton space rock. Wow! Did they get it? So it was. It it landed in um, uh, 1784, and so when when um, when Pedro II learned about the meteorite, he organised a commission of engineers to relocate it to Rio, and the trek lasted 126 days, uh, and uh, it was taken to the National Museum, the one with the library. So Twiky. there you go. And I'm glad to say that that meteorite was was among the objects that were left unscathed by the fire that destroyed the museum, so it survived. Tom, so that's good news. As somebody who likes
0: science, dinosaurs, all that kind of business, you would love Don Pedro the Second. He's really great, great guy. He's he's a man of. T- I tell you what, he sounds like. He sounds an absolutely ideal subject to be uh, the hero of a, a magical realist novel. Yeah, he absolutely is. He absolutely is. So he's very into literature as well. He writes to people like Victor Hugo, to Nietzsche, to Wagner, oh, to all these people. You know, they, they think he's brilliant. So his reputation in Europe among the sort of European lettered classes could not be higher. He asked Wagner to write an opera that would be premiered in Rio. So would you
1: say he is the Pele of
0: cultured European monarchs? Very nice, yes. He's the Pele, and rather than the Neymar of um <laughs> of 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 European style American monarchs, right? Right. <laughs> so yeah. He asked Wagner to write an opera. Wagner was too busy, so he couldn't. However, supposedly he uh, when they did the the whole Ring cycle at Bayreuth in eighteen seventy six, um, Don Pedro the Second was present. We should come on to his European travels in due course, and he sat next to the the new emperor of Germany at the premiere. So this is not the Kaiser, Tom, friend of the rest is history, great um, yachting enthusiast and shoe wearer. It's his grandfather, Kaiser Wilhelm I. And Don Pedro ruins the opera for everybody by constantly saying to, um, <laughs> to all the other... Bigwigs, he says oh i'm very familiar with this music this is the first (laughs) time you've heard it but but i know it by heart i i know all about this you don't need to tell me anything about wagner i know i know wagner i love wagner wagner's my friend and all this kind of thing yeah which drives everybody else completely completely mad so in other words his reputation is sky high brazil itself um they fight fight a terrible incredibly bloody war called the war of the triple alliance um in paraguay in the 1860s which apart from being bloody it it it's very useful for Brazil because it creates this sort of image of Brazilian nationalism and of the sort of united fatherland and all this sort of stuff. Um, but obviously there is this issue of slavery. Now, let's get to the 1870s. Uh, Brazil has about 10 million people by now, and between 10 and 20% of them, I think, are slaves. But the, the sort of the, the epicenter of slavery has slightly moved because what's, Change with Brazil is before we were talking about gold and we're talking about the mining. But the big thing in Brazil now is coffee. So coffee is produced in the south of Brazil. And that's where the sort of the epicenter of, of, of slavery has really has moved to. The big landowners are based in the south around Rio and Sao Paulo. And in those in the big sort of the four southernmost provinces, about just under two-thirds of the population are slaves. Now, the emperor himself, Don Pedro II, personally, is not in favor of slavery at all. He never bought slaves. He inherited 40 slaves, and he set them all free as soon as he could. He would often write to friends, and he would say, he doesn't like slavery. Slavery is a terrible curse on my nation, he would say. But he was always inhibited um, from moving against it, because he's worried about alienating the elite. He thinks the elite who own the slaves, he depends on them for his power. Um, So Brazil is sort of slowly beginning to change. So they do things like there's a law of free birth in 1871, which is that basically all children of slaves will be freed. They have to stay with their mothers until they're eight. And then their owners, the the mother's owner can choose between being compensated by the state then and there, and the child is set free at the age of eight, or they can continue to use the child's services until the child turns 21. So this is hardly, you know, kind of overnight abolition. But even so, it begins to alienate the big kind of coffee elites, the slave owners, because they start to think, well, if the government can do this, the monarch is not to be trusted, the monarch is going to end up abolishing slavery completely, this is all a very bad thing. So, what you get in the 1870s is something that I think a lot of listeners may consider, may find a bit weird, which is that the the that what you'd call the kind of liberal elite, i.e., the people who read newspapers, who go to the opera, who you know um, are sophisticated, you know, people of the world, people who are well traveled. These people start to flirt with republicanism and become interested in republicanism because it's it, they equate republicanism with the defense of slavery. So in other words, something that you might think of as very progressive becomes identified with a cause that could hardly be more reactionary. So there's this sort of sense in the 1870s that, for all his amazing scientific stuff, meteorite, interfering with meteorites, <laughs> sourcing, and yeah, yeah, being a fan of Wagner, all this kind of stuff, that the emperor is losing support among the very people that he really most needs um, to keep his regime going. But do the slaves not love him? Well, yeah, the slaves do do, quite, as as we'll discover, the slaves do quite like. The emperor because they see him as the sort of face of, of the, uh, the abolitionist movement, which is perhaps um, a slight misreading of it, because he doesn't really do that much to encourage abolition. But so you start to get mockery of Pedro II. People they they have some very strange names for him. Actually, his opponents call him Pedro Banana. Why seems very harsh. Uh, well, they say his head is very long. He has a very long head. <laughs> haps- oh, he looks like a banana. Right. Okay. Maybe his sort of Habsburg. Um, blood or something like that yeah they also and the way they, pedro- they used to call pericles the squid the squid they also call it's him pedro of- the cashew would you rather be a cashew or a banana tom um i think i think cashew i think a cashew as well i think i'd much rather be likened to a cashew i think a banana is just un- undecorous isn't it yeah if you're gonna be likened to a fruit of any kind louis philippe in france was likened to a pear yeah and um clank was
1: likened to a peanut wasn't he
0: was he by general <laughs> sitwell Oh, yes, of course he was. Yes, he used to call him a peanut. Yeah. So there's a whole podcast to be done about emperors Fruit and nut-based nut abuse <laughs> is <laughs> a real theme there that we can it, have to run it, with a bit
1: later it on. It definitely
0: is. Yeah. So the the elites, the sort of liberal elites, think that uh, Don Pedro is unsound on slavery. They also think he's unsound on travel, um, because in the 1870s, he starts to go traveling a lot, and they think this is very bad and very unpatriotic, and he should be more interested in Brazil. But he keeps sort of going for these jaunts around Europe. So he goes to America. So, Tom, would you believe he is the first ruling monarch to set foot in the United States? But not the first to set foot
1: in North America, because in, Maximilian uh, of Mexico. Mexico, who we, we did a whole episode
0: on, didn't we? We did. So when Ulysses S. Grant opens the World's Fair in Philadelphia in 1876, Don Pedro II is standing by his side. I mean, the World's Fair, he loves all that. Science machines, yep. displays of Bosnia. International travel. International travel, exactly. He goes to visit Alexander Graham Bell Great, uh, yeah. and allows him to test his first telephone, which is very yep. nice. Hola. He then goes off to France. He goes to visit Victor Hugo. Um, he visits Victor Hugo at his house. Uh, there's a lovely story here, Tom. Victor Hugo's daughter shows him in and says, uh, Papa, here is his majesty from Brazil. And Dom Pedro II says, My dear, there is only one majesty here. And it is Victor Hugo. Oh, that's splendid. I Isn't like that him. Good? Isn't that good? And Victor like Hugo him. says
1: no, I really like him. He sources meteorites
0: and he's polite to great French novelists. Here is. Victor Hugo said to him, You sire, you are a great man. You are the grandson of Marcus Aurelius. Oh, Isn't that a nice sire. thing to hear? Yeah, fabulous. Everything I mean, this is all very good. All very very, very good. I However, it doesn't I hope it doesn't go wrong. It is it, going to end badly, Tom, oh, I'll no. tell you now. I just want to, I, I think, I feel like I don't want you to think, I don't want it to come as too much as a shock when Don Pedro's life ends in misery, oh, as it will. No. Oh. So he gets back to Brazil, and um, the Brazilians, you know, they, they're very displeased by all this behavior. They say, by this stage, he's grown a massive beard, he's got glasses, he doesn't look... They they're very they're sort of puffed up, I think, a little bit, with a sense of sort of national destiny. And and they think he isn't he is an unprepossessing monarch. He's too interested in books and science and stuff, and he's unsound as they think on slavery, on the defence of slavery, and so they, they're sort of losing enthusiasm for him. A few years go by. Um eighteen eighty seven he goes on another of his trips. So he goes this time. He goes and visits Louis Pasteur, <laughs> I do believe. And he, he he spends a lot of time in Europe. He often goes under an assumed name when he's walking when he's traveling Europe. So he doesn't go as the emperor. So I think the Brazilians also think this is poor form. They would yeah. like him to go in splendor, yeah. whereas in fact he goes and stays in hotels under false names and spends his time writing poems. And they basically <laughs> think this is this is. And also he's he's. It's known that he's basically said to people. I love doing this. Left to me, I would just do this all the time. (laughs) I'd much rather live in Europe than in Brazil (laughs) and hang around with Victor Hugo. So (laughs) meanwhile, while he's away, obviously the issue of slavery is still there. Slavery has been abolished in the United States um, since the 1860s. We're now in the 1880s. There's a real sense that it's on its last legs, not least because the age of mass immigration means that the Brazilian economy is not as dependent on slavery. As it once was. There are rising slave revolts in the 1880s, and eventually, basically, the Brazilian government passes a law overnight, May 1888. The remaining 700,000 slaves are emancipated kind of forthwith. So, end of slavery. Now, the people who are really outraged about this are the coffee planters, the coffee elites of Rio and Sao Paulo. As far as they're concerned, they've lost their property. They blame the emperor. Actually, he's out of the country when it happens because he's on one of his tours. He's hanging out with but, Louis Pasteur. Right. But they say it's all his fault. He's He hasn't stuck up for us. He's a waste of space. He's got to go. There's also this huge thing in Brazil of positivism. You know, the sort of the late 19th century kind of the idea of science and reform and all that kind of thing. That has a massive traction with the kind of Brazil the brazilian um educated classes i guess because it's an anti-clericalism mm-hmm. so so and so and this turns against the idea of emperors is it against so, the idea of emperors that so kind of positivism republicanism secularism this sort of beautiful new future which just so neatly you know happens to align okay, with so their, own, their interests for yeah. their interests exactly so there's all this sort of stuff about um about about the positivism and the Republicans, and they're all kind of meetings and conspiracies. He gets back to Brazil, and in eighteen eighty nine, and on the ninth of November, eighteen eighty nine, he has a ball called the Ball on Fiscal Island. So this is a particular island, um, and he goes. It's it's basically to welcome the Chilean Navy who are who are visiting Brazil, um, and he goes to this ball, and there are all kinds of rumors going around the city about this ball that there are orgies happening that. He hasn't invited sufficient numbers of bigwigs, sort of liberal-minded bigwigs and so on. And while he's at the ball, the sort of Republican agitators have a meeting with officers in the Brazilian army. The Brazilian army, and this is a very bizarre thing to say about an army, the Brazilian army is a hotbed of positivism, Tom. <laughs> the officers <laughs> like nothing better <laughs> than right. of an evening chatting about positivist ideas they've got yeah. from, from Europe. So they basically, a whole load of young officers go to the, this old marshal who's called Deodoro de Fonseca. They go to his house and they say, you know, the cause of positivism and of Brazil, it's time to get rid of the emperor. This old fool is at his party. Um, we should move against him. The, the marshal, Deodoro de Fonseca, he sort of drags his heels a bit, but eventually he agrees to do it. So five days later, on the 14th of November, he rides to the army headquarters he he, he 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 it's all a bit confused he proclaims this coup against the emperor with the words long live his majesty the emperor the imperial family and the army which is obviously not the ideal launch for a republican coup but nevertheless he says the government's got to go we have a new regime and all this kind of stuff the emperor is up in his palace and he's sort of you know thinking about Yeah, exactly. He gets a telegram from the the center of Rio saying there's been some kind of coup. And he says to his wife, oh, it's fine. He says, I'll go down to Rio, but when I arrive there, it'll all be over It's just a storm in a teacup. He travels by train. And on the train, Tom, you'd be delighted to hear. He spends his time on the train. He takes it so seriously. He spends his time reading the latest scientific periodicals. (laughs) So he gets to the center of Rio and um, various sort of marquises and stuff present themselves, and they say, should we raise troops to suppress this coup? The emperor says, no, 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 I know that this is nothing. I know the people of Brazil. This is absolutely nothing. Then eventually, a load of officers pitch up at the palace, uh, so on the 16th of November, and they say, Actually, it is something we've decided that you and the rest of the imperial family should be banished. Now, this is by, by no means, you know, this is, we're talking about quite small groups of people. This is by no means a mass uprising. It's not like, this isn't the French Revolution. There are no kind of great mobs pouring through the streets because the emperor is actually pretty popular. But the emperor, I think partly because there's part of him that thinks this basically means a lot of time I can spend with Louis Pasteur. Um, he, When they tell him this, he says, if it is so, then this will be my retirement. I have worked hard and I'm tired. It is time to go and rest. And so, unbelievably, without raising an army to defend himself or anything like this, he says, "Right, let's pack our bags." In fact, the only time he kind of gets angry is when the officers come back in a day later and they say, um, "Basically, have you not have you not packed yet? You've got to you've got to go now <laughs> in the middle of the night." And the emperor is very cross and he shouts at them and he says, I am not an escaped slave. I will not leave in the middle of the night. And then he shouts, all of you are mad, but then he packs his bags anyway and he gets on the boat and off he goes to Europe. And that's basically the end of him. And that's it. So he doesn't come to a terrible end.
1: Actually, it's quite a happy story because he said he wanted, you know, he was, I think it's a disappointing end, Tom. He'd been good. I thought he was going to have a horrible end in a dungeon or something. No, no, he doesn't have an
0: end in a dungeon. I'm, I'm happy about that. And what happens to his daughter? Well, she goes, she with, goes him. with him. Actually, she never wanted to be empress, and he didn't well, so even want a her to be empress, story, empress either. Then, this is a happy well, story. Well, except he doesn't live very well. We'll come on to what happens to him. So, this is eighteen eighty nine. I'll quote a Brazilian writer about what happened next to Brazil. So. In the century after they got rid of Emperor Don Pedro II, the Brazilian Republic had 12 states of emergency, 17 institutional acts. The National Congress dissolved six times, 19 military revolutions, two presidential resignations, three presidents prevented from assuming office, four presidents deposed, seven different constitutions, four dictatorships, and nine authoritarian governments. So I think it's fair to say... Don Pedro yeah. II was a relative oasis of stability. And in fact, you ask about the slaves and what the slaves thought of him. He was very popular among Brazil's kind of African population. Free free and Indian population, exactly. So we did a podcast what seems like an eternity ago about weird wars. And one of the weird wars, one of my choices was a war called The War of Canudos in the 1890s, written about in a brilliant book called The War at the End of the World by Mario Vargas Llosa, the Peruvian novelist. And this was a kind of – there was a guy called Antonio the Counselor who led this kind of weird kind of religious commune. Um, And that appealed to former slaves. And there were thousands of them. And they fought this war in which 30,000 people died against the Brazilian government. And part of the appeal of his kind of commune and his millenarian religious movement was that an emperor, a king, would return. So it was a combination of Don Pedro II and – And the lost king of Portugal, Sebastian, Dom Sebastiao from the 16th century. And this, Dom Pedro II lived on in the memory of lots of Brazilians as this kind of exiled enlightenment paragon. King over the water. Yeah, the king over the water who had had presided over abolition. So what happened to him? So he went off to um, Europe it wasn't a great laugh, actually. He didn't hang out as much as he would have liked with scientists and novice because he's in very poor health. He suffered from what I think diabetes. Most people think he had diabetes. Um, he didn't have much money because the Brazilians basically cut off all his money. So he lived for only two years in Europe. So this sort of dream of a lovely retirement. Oh, that's sad. Um, however, when he died in Paris, which he loved of pneumonia in December 1891, the, the French, to their, they're very good with, Dead monarchs, Tom. Aren't they the French? President wow. Macron absolutely distinguished himself. Yes, he did. Not always a friend of the rest is history. Yeah. But, but he distinguished himself with his reaction to the death of the queen. So the French stage a state funeral for Don Pedro II, uh, where his, his coffin was escorted by 30,000 French troops. 30,000. Goodness. And 300,000 people stood in the pouring rain to to see it go. Well the French do the French do love a monarch. Don't they, they love this. There are hundreds of wreaths and the um the message on the the wreath that that stands out there was one wreath that said just said simply from a Brazilian black on behalf of his race. Um wow. which sort of tells you about how so then he was his, his coffin was taken by a train to Portugal and he was buried alongside the other Bragan- Braganza monarchs the monarchs you didn't get back to to Brazil. To Brazil. But interestingly he is pretty much regarded I think by a lot of ordinary Brazilians as the greatest Brazilian, so he wins polls and things like that.
1: Did they have? Um, did they have an equivalent of the? I don't think they the did. Because we have
0: one in Portugal. We often talk about that. Did they have? I don't think they did in Brazil. I might be wrong. So there's
1: no. There's, so there's no. There's no um, kind of imperial party in
0: Brazil saying let's no let's get, bring back the uh, bring the back imperial the, bring family. back the emperor. But I think I mean I, I you know I think Brazil is a fascinating country. Obviously, great footballing history, but it'd be even more fascinating if it was an empire again, don't you think, Tom? Yeah, I mean, yeah. at the moment, I'm going to pin my colours. Can I pin my colours to the mask? Yeah, I'm not a massive admirer of, of uh, Bolsonaro. No, in fact, I would. I think I'd go as far as to say he's not a friend of of the rest of history. What about President Lula? He's got a great name, um, but he, he's he's uh, because he was in prison, wasn't he? And now- he was in prison. Um, of the two, I would. I would, I would pick Lula. I'll be honest with you, but but given the choice of Lula Bolsonaro or or Don Pedro the Second, an from emperor, dead. an emperor with an interest in meteorites, who would <laughs> yeah, you go for? I'd, I'd, I'd go for the emperor. <laughs> well, I always, yeah, I'm a monarchy fan. Um, <laughs> um, an emperor who, an emperor, yeah, an emperor who like stages operas and um, gives money to historical associations. I think he'd be very, he'd be very into dinosaurs I think as well. I think. I think he's... is he a friend of the rest of his history? I'd like to think he is.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's enshrine him as a friend of the rest of history. Great.
0: Okay. Well, that's, that's no, wonderful. No, our honor. Yeah. That's wonderful.
1: I, I don't, I knew nothing about him at all. Nothing. Uh, so I really feel that I've, uh, I've educated myself here.
0: You've gained a friend. I think is I've, gained a, <laughs>
1: I've, I've gained knowledge and I've gained a friend. Oh, and that's lovely. That is, you know, that can't be reckoned a waste of time. So <laughs> if I, I anybody that, says I, this
0: podcast I, is a waste of time, I'll be well, very I, shocked.
1: I, I hope that everyone listening likewise has gained a friend, perhaps. Yeah. in the uh, yeah. in the form of don pedro and has uh maybe you learned something as i have done so uh thank you all very much for listening thank you dominic for um dare i call it a tour de force i think you should i think i, think I will a tour de force yeah. so thank you yeah. very much uh, thank you all for listening and uh we will be back very very soon with more bye-bye Adios. Thanks for listening to The Rest Is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest Is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast Walking the Dog where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond and you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland and yes I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount in fact There are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest Is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoiled dog in history, maybe.